What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Singapore's People's Action Party chooses elite, paternalistic leaders as reliably as it handily wins elections, which is why its latest pick, presumably the country's next prime minister, is so unusual. He has frailties, he has hobbies, he has a guitar. And it's been three years since the last edition of the world's flashiest every two years art exhibition. The pandemic has delayed the Venice Biennale, but our culture correspondent says it's proved very much worth the wait. First up, though. Russia made good yesterday on a threat it's been making for weeks. It cut off gas supplies to the European Union countries of Poland and Bulgaria. Poland's prime minister said it would be taking Russia to court. And Bulgaria's leader said the country could not be blackmailed. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, made clear she'd been preparing for the escalation. Our response will be immediate, united and coordinated. Next week, EU energy ministers will meet to discuss their options. Europe needs Russian energy to run its households and industries, so it's been walking a tightrope here. Sanctions are designed to dent Russia's economy, but not so much as to make Vladimir Putin turn off the taps in retaliation. With gas supplies now cut to two countries, that balancing act just got quite a bit harder. Pretty much since Russia invaded Ukraine, the European Union has been fighting about whether or not it should continue to buy Russian oil and gas. Henry Kerr is economics editor at The Economist. As it continues to purchase Russian energy, it is in effect funding the Russian state and the war in Ukraine. It's sent almost $50 billion in payments to energy to Russia since the war started. And now Russia is cutting off the gas supply to Poland and Bulgaria. So it's come in ahead and made the first aggressive move here. And it's really the most aggressive economic sanction that Russia has imposed on the West to date during this war. And talk us through that move. Why has it chosen to do exactly that? Well, it made the demand a while ago for European countries to which it sells gas to pay in rubles rather than in foreign currency. And it's not exactly clear what the purpose of that was, but it probably has something to do with the financial engineering that Russia needs to do to try and circumvent the sanctions on its financial systems. And it threatens that should countries decline to pay in rubles rather than in euros, that it would cut off the gas in this manner. It is now following through on that threat because Poland and Bulgaria had not been paying in rubles. They hadn't been complying with that demand. But of course, 
there's an extent to which this is all just part of a, a strategic game that's going on between Europe and, and Russia. And clearly, the Russians think there's some strategic advantage to be had here, and it could mean that more's coming. So what's the immediate next move in the game then? What's the response, Ben, and, and how will Poland and Bulgaria deal with not having that Russian gas? Well, both Poland and Bulgaria are in a position to move away from Russian gas. There are a few things to note. The first thing is we're at a point in the year at which gas demand is falling because we're going into the summer. So this really doesn't bite until next winter. The second thing is that both Poland and Bulgaria have alternative sources of supply. So Poland has a pipeline that hopefully can come online this year from Norway. Bulgaria has one coming online from Greece. And although both countries import a very high fraction in Bulgaria's case, essentially all its gas from Russia. In neither country is gas a crucial part of the energy mix. It's, it's a little over 10% in both cases of the total energy mix compared with closer to 30% in Germany and Italy, the economies that are really dependent on gas. So as a first move, I think Poland and Bulgaria will be okay. And I think the most likely thing that happens next is we hear from the Europeans what sanctions they are going to impose, probably just on Russian oil, because you have this situation here where each side is trying to hit the other at its vulnerable point. Russia knows that Europe depends on it for gas. Europe knows that it has uh, the global market available to it for oil. And so to the extent that there's escalation here, the Europeans are more likely to focus on oil and the Russians are more likely to focus on gas. So if the EU were to sanction Russia further in some way, what might that look like? So the one extreme end, you have a f total embargo on Russian oil. But what the European Union has been talking about recently is alternatives to that. So one suggestion is that the price paid for Russian energy is capped. Another idea is to tax Russian oil. And this is quite a clever idea because the idea is that because anyone in Europe can buy on the open market, if Europe put in place a, a tax or a tariff on what oil that was bought from Russia, Russia would just have to cut its prices to remain competitive with the open market. So in effect, Russia would pay the entirety of the tax. And you might end up in a situation where the oil keeps flowing from Russia, but at a much lower price. And Europe, in a sense, taxes away all of Russia's profits, so it gets the best of both worlds, not sending so much money to Russia, but the energy keeps flowing. But hanging over all of that is a question of how the Russians would then respond. You know, for a sufficiently high tax, would Russia just say, well, we're not going to sell you the oil? There's also the question of the extent to which Russia could redirect oil in response to sanctions to other buyers. Certainly the demand is there because plenty of countries are buying Russian oil, but there's a big logistical challenge in redirecting it. If I had to make a prediction, I think there's going to be some kind of tax or, or price cap on Russian oil, and that's the next step. But whether or not it's, it's in response to what the EU may yet do, do you expect that, that Russia will continue to, to turn off the taps to other countries? Other countries could, could bear that even? It's clearly a risk, and the more punitive the sanctions imposed by the EU on Russia are, the likelier it is that Russia cuts off the gas to economies where it would do a lot of damage, including Germany and Italy. In Germany, there's a big debate going on about how large the damage from losing natural gas from Russia would be. The estimates range from, at the lower end, a uh, loss of about 0.5% of GDP to 10 times that, 5% of GDP. That's a really big range. It's sort of hard to know the full effects of removing an important input to industrial production because what would happen would be 
household demand, heating homes would be prioritised and lots of industry which use natural gas would find that it wasn't available to them. So you'd have this fall in industrial output. Now, whether or not that's a bearable cost is a subjective question. Uh, People who favour shutting off the gas or favour sanctions on Russian energy point out that in the spring of 2020, Europe chose to bear a very high economic cost in the form of lockdowns in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. And in 2020, the European Union's economy shrank by almost 6%. So many would argue that the goal of helping Ukraine and not being involved in the indirect funding of Putin's war is as noble a goal as stopping the spread of COVID. So shouldn't you be prepared to pay that price? But there's no doubt that if the higher end of the range is accurate, and we're talking about 5% of GDP, then that really is a significant loss. People in Germany would really feel that. So it would be painful. And I think you'd have to have public support for the idea that this was worth it. But what would that look like, shutting Russia entirely out of energy markets? If that happens, Europe is paying a heavy economic price. But I think the Russian economy is in really dire straits indeed. Uh, You'd see more downward pressure on the ruble. And I think that it would be very difficult for uh, the Russian government to continue financing its war. It would be a really severe price for Russia to pay. So I'm not sure really that that's the place in which Russia wants to end up, but it's not impossible. Thanks very much for joining us, Henry. Thanks, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. A single party has run Singapore's government since the country gained independence from Malaysia in 1965. The centre-right People's Action Party has massive public support, reliably winning huge shares of votes and parliamentary seats. Yet, at the last election in 2020, the party slipped to a bit over 60% of the vote. It'd be a landslide anywhere else, But in Singapore, it's a sign of dimming popularity, one that had opposition supporters cheering. That left party members not only searching for a new leader, but also, it seems, a new kind of leader to presumably run the country after the next election in 2025. After a year of uncertainty as to who will become Singapore's next prime minister, the People's Action Party, or the PAP as it's known, announced that Lawrence Wong is going to take over as party leader when its current boss, who is also the prime minister, eventually steps down. Charlie McCann is a Southeast Asia correspondent for The Economist. It's not clear when the prime minister will do so. He has yet to announce his retirement date. But what it means in effect is that Barring a historic upset at the next election, Wong is now on course to become the country's fourth prime minister. And he's an interesting selection. 
in many respects, he resembles your typical PAP politician. He is a competent technocrat who rose to the ranks of the civil service, has been a cabinet minister with several different portfolios. But I think in some other respects, he will be kind of an unusual leader. How do you mean? Unlike previous leaders, Wang grew up in what he describes as an ordinary family. His father was a salesman, his mom was a school teacher, and unlike many prominent politicians, he didn't go to an elite high school, he went to his local neighborhood school. And there are other interesting points. Singapore remains a deeply socially conservative country, and yet Wong's private life is not picture perfect. He is divorced. Since we're married, he doesn't have any kids. And the other interesting thing to say here is that he's been really intent on promoting this image of himself as just an ordinary guy. He has hobbies. He likes to play guitar. He likes to post pictures of his dog to Instagram. And he displays this human touch. During a speech he gave in which he thanked frontline workers for their sacrifices during the pandemic, he broke down in tears. Mr. Speaker, words are not sufficient to express our appreciation for all of those who are... Please give me a minute. And those tears endeared him to the public. And so that human touch then is fairly unusual for for Singapore's leading party. Yeah, that's right. It really cuts against the image of the typical PAP politician. The man with whom the party is most closely associated remains to this day Lee Kuan Yew, the country's first prime minister and its founding father. Lee was ruthless. He was unabashedly elitist. And he was not afraid of telling Singaporeans what was best for them. Fundamentally, Lee saw no need to be liked. And over the course of his long career, he retired from politics in 2011. He molded the party in his image. And the prime ministers who succeeded him were no different, really. And many of Wong's rivals for the top job were quite similar in many respects. The man first selected to succeed the current prime minister, Heng Sui Ket, is widely thought to be quite distant, a bit dull. And the two other main candidates for the job, Chan Chun Singh, who is education minister, and Ang Ye Kung, who is health minister, are regarded as arrogant in the case of Chan and stern in the case of Ang. So you say the perception of him is a softer and cuddlier PAP politician. Is, is that accurate? Is he actually? Well, it's certainly what Singapore's state-owned media would like you to think. In the days since the announcement, the papers here have been full of these glowing reports about Wong, making him out to be this regular guy who you go get a beer with. I wanted to find out if that was actually true. And so I spoke with somebody who has known him since his student days. And she confirmed that portrait. She said he's not considered a charismatic visionary like Lee Sr. was, but he is fundamentally a decent guy who is comfortable showing emotion. Wong is really an everyman. So why has the PAP warmed to someone who's so everyman? The PAP understands that it has a problem. 
the public has this image of the party as being cold and calculating, it understands that that needs to change. In the last election, which was held in 2020, the PAP won easily. It got over 61% of the vote, which of course in any other country would be a landslide. But by the PAP's standards, that wasn't a very good result and won the smallest share of seats in its history. So the PAP's election postmortem found that Singaporeans thought that opposition politicians were much more empathetic than PAP politicians. And clearly, the party has taken that on board, is trying to find ways of staving off this negative image, and thinks that Wong is going to help them to do so. In the sense that he's going to soften the party's image, or that he's actually going to soften the the, the party's platforms and policies? That is a great question. It's hard to say. I think it is tempting to think that Wong might remake the party and by extension the government in his image, that it might make it more compassionate and caring. But I think we mustn't forget that Wong is a party guy and the party surely would not select someone who they didn't think was reliable. So I think even though there is a lot of uncertainty here and Wong may well surprise us, I think it's unlikely that he's going to push the country in a radically different direction. Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The Art Biennale in Venice is supposed to happen every odd-numbered year, drawing in more than half a million culture vultures. It's the original, the grandest, many say the best, of all the art world's other biennales, which are themselves based on the one in Venice, first held in 1895. Last year's edition was delayed by the pandemic, but as of last weekend, the biggest biennale ever is now open and runs until November, and our culture correspondent, Fiametta Rocco, says it's very much worth the trip. Well, the Biennale is always a special event in the art calendar, but this one was really significant for two reasons. The first is that, of course, it's the first show since the start of the pandemic. We haven't had one since 2019. And secondly, this year, the main exhibition has been assembled for the first time by an Italian woman, Cecilia Alemani. And it's very much the Women's Biennale. And what was the theme of that main exhibition? Well, interestingly enough, it's absolutely huge, bigger than earlier years. 213 artists from 58 countries, ranging from Brazil to Zimbabwe. It's massive. The exhibition is called The Milk of Dreams, and it takes its name and inspiration from a children's book written by a British surrealist, Leonora Carrington, who lived and worked in Mexico City. And in the 1950s, she wrote some stories for her children that featured very odd characters, such as Headless John, who had wings instead of ears. In taking this book, Miss Alimani set to evoke a magical world where she says life is constantly re-envisioned through the prism of the imagination. And that's really what this main exhibition in the Biennale is about. So what was on show? So Miss Alemani is drawn to artists who explore particular themes. She did some earlier work for Project for Art Basel, which brought art into urban spaces in Buenos Aires. And that really shaped her interest in the artists of Central and South America. 
Rosanna Paulino's wet nurse series, for example, about black women in Brazil who breastfed their master's children, are especially haunting, as are Firele Baez's vividly, vividly colourful paintings and installations from her native Dominica. The show also probes people's relationship with the natural world. It's a subject that also inspired Carrington. One example here, a really fantastic example, is Delcy Morelos's massive earth maze. You walk in and out of its contours. And when you lean down to sniff it, it actually gives off the scent of cocoa powder, cloves, tobacco, very much recollections from a slave plantation. And we've been speaking just about the, the main exhibition, but that's not all that there is to the Biennale. Of course not. Almost the most famous part of it is the National Pavilion. Some of them are permanent structures. Some of them are just put up in different places that have been rented or even as pop-ups. And they really were quite extraordinary this year. The British Pavilion, Sonia Boyce, won the Golden Lion. In the other countries, if you haven't been, I would recommend anybody to go and see the pavilions of Greece, Latvia, and the Nordic Pavilion, which this year has been renamed the Sami Pavilion, because all the artists come from the Sami. Those three in particular, I would say, were really quite remarkable. And is there a way that the the politics of of war in Ukraine uh, cast a shadow over the show? Well, they certainly did. And, And that was in two ways, I think. I mean, first of all, virtually on the day the Russians invaded Ukraine, the Russian artists and curators who were going to fill the Russian pavilion resigned, and the Russian pavilion was empty. President Zelensky gave a speech to a massed audience in the middle of the Biennale. So it was very, very much a sense that the Ukrainian artists who had managed to get there, and some of them arrived only by driving for weeks and weeks from Ukraine to Italy, that this was very much sort of front-page news. But you couldn't help but also see a lot of the artworks around Venice without a sense of the war being very, very much in the foreground. Anselm Kiefer has a huge, magnificent piece about the 20th century and war and its long history. And Anish Kapoor also has filled the academia with a whole series of works that are red and black, and they are about blood, and they're about carnage, and they're about fighting. And you can't really look at any of this without having Ukraine at the forefront of your mind. You're describing not only a very large show here, but a very diverse one. Does it, does it all hold together to your mind? Well, where so often the main Biennale exhibition is a cacophony of artistic styles and ideas. Masalamani's show this year has a surprising sense of harmony, even among this riot of ideas, colours and materials. For me, I have to say it's probably the best show I've seen in 20 years. Thanks very much for your time, Fionetta. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Do leave us a rating wherever you listen, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.
what's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.